Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. You guys and girls all ready to hear the word of the Lord today? Absolutely. Amen? Amen. Praise be to God. So if you guys want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14, we'll be there in verses 28 and 29. I'm going to pray to start our service. So if you guys want to join me in a word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless our service. And we only gather together for Him. Yes. We're only here for one reason. I'm not here to talk about sports or the weather or anything like that. I'm here to talk about Jesus. And we want and I want to know, and I hope you want to know what he says so that we can live better lives for him, know him more. So let's pray, and I'll give you the title of the sermon, and we'll get rolling on down here. Lord Jesus, thank you for this beautiful Sunday morning, Lord God, that you have given us. Lord, of course, you give us every day, Lord your word says, David said in the Psalms, today is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, Lord. It's a choice. Lord, we have a choice to either rejoice and be glad in it or be angry and sourpussed and frowny faced, Lord God, and just be angry all day long and let everything get to us, Lord. Or we can just rejoice and be glad because the day is yours, Lord, for every day is yours, Lord. So I just thank you, Lord, for this day. And I thank you, Lord God, for your word. Jesus, thank you so much that we get up your word, because in your word, I'm going to talk about it a little bit, but Lord, in your word is where we really get to know you. Because this is how you've given us to know you, Lord. Not by feelings, or not by, you know, manifestations of this or that or whatever, Lord, but through your written word, which is perfect and holy and divine. So Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity today to draw near and closer unto you and to get to know you more. Lord, by your word, by the study of the Holy Bible, your beautiful, perfect word. So, Lord, I pray you bless this service and bless our ears. Lord, you, Jesus, you were always saying, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Lord, I pray all of our ears today would be ears that hear, Lord. I pray if any be out there, Lord God, that would ever listen to this, Lord God, that have ears that won't hear, Lord, I pray you'd open their ears that won't hear. And I pray they wouldn't be stiff-necked anymore because, Lord, <clears throat> I pray we'd have ears to hear because we, we are the ones that control whether our ears are open or not. Not you. You want all of us to have open ears to hear what you have to say. Bless you, praise you, and thank you. Bless this service and keep that dirty devil out of here, Lord. Keep him out of here. Keep him out of our minds. Keep him out of our thoughts. May we focus on you for the next hour or so. We love you and praise you, dear God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, praise be to God. Matthew chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 28. The title of today's sermon. The title. Is it really you, Jesus? Got that? Is it really you, Jesus? Matthew 28. And 29 only. <laughs> so we're going to read. 28 says, And Peter answered him, Jesus, and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. <laughs> so Jesus said, he said, Jesus said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, I know you're probably reading your Bibles going, wait a minute, Pastor Ed. What? Two verses? There's a whole section here. What's going on? Well, a little bit of backdrop on that. You see, last week, I had intentions in my New King James Bible. This heading is called Jesus Walks on the Sea, and it's from Matthew 14, 22 to 33. Last week, I had every intention, believe it or not, to teach the whole entire section. I was going to teach Matthew 14, 22 through 33. Every single verse, I was going to get them all down. I was going to do it. We were going to read them. We were going to learn them. We were going to study them. But as we learned last week, God had other plans, I believe. So today, another day, new day, right? Praise be to God. I had very every intention to go ahead and finish out from 28 to 33. In fact, that's how I had it up my, in my notes all up until 
Actually, I just changed it this morning. I was intending almost all week long, I had intentions to do the rest of the half of the section here. And if you guys remember, we get Jesus feeding the 5,000, which, which was besides women and children, that was as many as 15 to 20, 25,000 people. And then in verse 22, he sends the disciples away. He goes up on the mountain to pray. His disciples are fighting the ocean 16 to 18 hours all night long. They're only in the middle of the sea. And then, you know, that's where Jesus looks at them and he's testing their faith. Remember that? We talked about it last week. And it was all about God testing our faith. Right, so that's what we were looking at. And so I thought, well, you know, it's just one whole section. We're going to finish it today. And I had every intention, up until just a couple days ago, really, of doing the whole entire rest of that section, where Jesus comes, walks on the water, P Peter talks to him, Peter walks on the water, he starts to sink, Jesus comes, rescues him, they get back in the boat, and the disciples worship him. Pretty easy to talk about, pretty easy to read. But, unfortunately... Well, to me, actually, but not to God. He had other intentions for us this week. So today, we're only going to teach on the very next two verses because actually, God had a very powerful point to show us in response to last week's message about how God tests us, how God tests the hearts and minds of men. We have a powerful response to that in our very first couple verses. So, last week we learned that God tests our hearts and minds. Why? So that we can know where we're at as far as how much we trust God. We, our side. And also, B, we learned that God tests our hearts and minds so that He can find out where we are, how much we trust in Him, so on and so forth. Do we really cry out to Him? Do we really trust in Him? Or are we trusting in people? Or are we trusting in ourselves? In today's two verses, believe it or not, we have the very opposite of the idea of last week where God tested us. We have the very exact opposite of that idea today. And what is it? We get to learn that God shows us that He gives us a provision to test Him and His Word now, hold on a second. You may be out there going, whoa, wait a minute, Pastor Ed. Hold on a second. Back up. Let's roll the whole, whoa, 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 whoa. We get to test God? We, people, can test God? We can throw a, a test like God tests us in the sea? We can do that same, same thing to God? You may be thinking, wait a minute now. Those are blasphemous words. You can't say that. How dare you say that? God's almighty. How dare you say we get to throw a test toward God? I don't know if you know this, but in many Christian circles, to say those words, I'd be using profanity. Maybe you guys don't know that. I know it. People are completely against the idea of testing God and his word or what we think to be that word. So where do I find this idea? Well, we read over those two verses. Where do we see this idea that we get to test God? Well, read it over with me again. Look to verse 28 again, and let's talk about it. Verse 28. I'm going to read it again. And Peter answered. So actually, go back one verse, 14, 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, the disciples in the boat, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. So Jesus speaks this. Now Peter's response, remember, Peter was always the impetuous one. He was very impulsive. So I'll guarantee you the disciples were all sitting in the boat after Jesus spoke, and they're all going, wait, is it? Because remember, they thought it was a ghost. And they're elbowing Peter going, Peter, wait, we don't know for sure. It's, it's a ghost. Peter, hey, hey. Verse 28, Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. That was Peter testing Jesus Christ. 
Absolutely. What did he say? Read it again. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I want to paint the scene for you again. Because that was Peter testing Jesus, and we'll get to talking about it. Let me recap. Let me, let's look at the paint the scene again. Remember, disciples are on the water for 16 to 18 hours fighting this storm, and they're only halfway. They're in a massive storm. There's 12 of them in a boat. So chances are they were even trying to take turns because, you know, you can only row for so long trying to get somewhere where you're not going somewhere for so long before, you know, you're not going anywhere before you get tired. So they're on this sea of Galilee for 16 to 18 hours. They had completely to be exhausted. Remember, they were in the same situation as Jesus was. They were as tired as Jesus was, if not more tired, because now they'd been on a boat. Jesus got to rest in prayer while they got to be on the boat rowing, trying to row, getting, you know, maybe as much as 13 miles. We talked about that last week. Well, what do you get in a storm? What kind of situations is a storm? Remember, they're on the sea. That means that there's going to be lots of water. There's going to be lots of wind. There's going to be lots of waves. There's going to be mists. Think of a storm. I want you to picture a storm in your mind. There's clouds. There's darkness. It, they've got very low visibility. They can't see much because they're in a storm. Storms are dark. Storms are loud. Storms are noisy. You got wind. You got waves contrary to them. It, it's noisy. It's loud. And so the disciples are in this boat, completely exhausted. They're probably afraid that they're even going to lose their lives. I mean, you can't, you, you, you know, they knew how big the Sea of Galilee was. They knew where they were, even though the Bible says that they were in the wilderness. The disciples knew where they were at. So the disciples knew where Jesus said, to, you know, to send them. So they knew, hey, this should only take a couple hours, guys. And then, you know, they saw the, the sun set, and now they're on all night long, and now it's coming back around, and the sun's about to rise again, and they're still fighting this storm on the ocean. So they're completely tired, they're completely exhausted. They're fighting the winds, they're fighting the waves, and they're probably terrified that they're going to die. Now, in the midst of this storm, in the midst of this disaster that they're going through, Jesus comes walking toward them. But they don't know it's him, because remember, verse 26 says, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost! So remember that scene I just painted for you. The only reason they didn't really know fully that it was him was because of all this calamity that they had going around. The wind, the waves, the mist. They really couldn't tell it was Jesus, but they, they thought it might be Jesus. Uh, uh, now, all of a sudden, in the midst of all this, Jesus comes walking. They hear this voice that they thought was a ghost, but now they hear this voice. Now, this voice that they hear sounds a little bit like their master, but they can't be 100% sure because of all the elements that are going on around them, because of all the storm elements that are all fighting them, and they're fighting, and they're tired. So how would you, in a situation like this, find out who it was that was really talking to you and know for sure? Well, you yell out like Peter did, Lord! If it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Because he knew what? Number one, he knew Jesus was Lord. He knew Jesus was God. He knew Jesus was a miracle maker. He knew Jesus could let him walk on that water. He knew that. Now, this is why I say this is an example that God gives us, that he allows us to test him when we're not 100% sure. And you'd say, how? You might be saying still, how? How, Pastor Ed? I just don't quite see it. How do we see that Jesus allowed Peter to test him? Well, let me explain. Peter, one of Jesus's most beloved disciples. Peter, Jesus had 12 disciples that we know. We actually had thousands, but it, he had 12 that were of his kind of like his closer. He walked around with them everywhere. They saw the miracles that he did. They did, you know, they were with him for most of them. But in that 12, out of that 12, he had three main disciples. Peter, James, and John. He took them up, up on the mountain to pray, and then he was transfigured before them. He went in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he went with all 12, but then three of them he took closer to him, and then he went off to pray for a, all night long, or an hour here, an hour there. He had three that were really, really like his close circle, like those that were like his 
you know, those were his like his bosom ones. They were they were they were very close to him. They were very tight. So here, one of Jesus's most intimate disciples tested Jesus Christ by questioning him and not just believing the voice that he heard. Peter, being one of the big three, as you can call them, had to know Jesus' voice pretty well. So how would there be a test here? How did, he, how did he know that this might be Jesus? Well, number one, how he knew that this might be Jesus is he addressed the figure that they thought was a ghost as Lord. Now, the disciples just didn't call anybody Lord when they were in their travels. In fact, you can read it all throughout the accounts of the Gospels. The disciples only called Jesus Lord. Now, you'd say, well, maybe, maybe Pastor Ed, maybe he called him Lord because that was just a sign of respect. But I went to the Greek, and the Greek word here for Lord is kiros, which means to whom a person belongs or their master. And the disciples just didn't call anybody master. They only called Jesus Master. Only ever recorded, they called Jesus their Master, their Lord. So they knew that it might be Jesus speaking to them. And we know that by number one, he questioned him, he tested him on the fact of if it's you really, you Lord, let me come to you on the water. Because if it was really a ghost, the ghost is not going to give somebody the ability to help somebody walk on the water. So he laid a test out there for Jesus because questioning and not just believing then commanding a sign of someone is considered testing slash tempting and you'd say well I disagree with that Pastor Ed and you still can that's fine but the word says that you're wrong remember Satan tempted slash tested Jesus in Matthew 4 3 in the wilderness with the same words that Peter used here on the sea if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now, these were the same exact words that Peter just used here. Lord, if it's you, command me to come out and walk on the water. So, yes, absolutely we see that Peter tested Jesus Christ. Now, am I saying that Peter tested Jesus the same way that Satan did? Am I saying that Peter tempted Christ the same way as Satan did? And I would say absolutely not. That's why we have this message today, because there's two ways to test God, one he approves of and one he doesn't approve of. We know that Peter doesn't approve, or Jesus approves of the way Peter tested him versus the way Satan tested him in the wilderness because of two things. Number one, Matthew 4, 4, Jesus reports, responds to Satan and he says, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, by every word, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What did he do there? He rejected Satan. He rebuked Satan for his command and his test on Christ in the wilderness, Matthew 4, 4, and that whole section. But here, how did Jesus treat Peter? Well, read verse 29. So he said, that would be Jesus, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. So Peter actually walked on the water to go see Jesus. What does that tell you? Jesus didn't rebuke Peter. Jesus said, come. Jesus didn't even get mad at Peter and say, how dare you? You better get here. You better, you better uh, know it's me right now. How dare you know? He came, and look what happened. Peter actually walked on the water. Well, Jesus is the one that gave him the ability to do that, and if Jesus was mad at him, you better believe that Peter, as he tested Jesus, if Christ was mad, Peter would have sank like a rock. Jesus wouldn't have given him the ability to walk on the water to come to him. Peter would have sank like a rock. Absolutely. This point can't be missed. If the beloved Peter of Christ's big three didn't get rebuked for testing Christ then, then why would God be angry with us for testing him now? He wouldn't, of course, for God is no respecter of persons. God loves every person the same exact way, from the person that loves Satan to the person that's the most holy person in the whole world, somebody that trusts in God more than anybody else. 
Jesus Christ loves that person as much as the other person. He loves one the same as the other. There's no respect to persons. And of course, we know that Jesus loved Peter, and we know that he still loves today, because God is love. We know that. So with all this said, I hope you saw that yes, it is acceptable to God in a respect to allow us to test him. So why did I prove all this to you? Why did I prove to you just now that God allows a provision for people to test him? Am I just trying to get you all, anybody that's listening to me, to just tempt Jesus Christ and God Almighty uh, just because? Am I just telling you that because, you know, you should just go out tomorrow and say, oh, I'm gonna, all right, now I know I get to start testing God. All right, I'm going to get him. No, absolutely not. God forbid that anyone test Jesus or God Almighty in a wrong way. That is not my heart at all. You should never just test or tempt God for just any reason, whatever. Oh, well, you know, because I'm going to. Wrong. Wrong, 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 wrong. So why did I go through this whole thing? Number one, as I prepare for my sermons every week, I, I have no idea. I open the Bible. My page is blank other than my opening. Hi, how you guys all doing? My page is blank. So how I prepare for every sermon every week, and if I try to do it any other way, God rebukes me and says, no, you better try again, is I pray. Lord, what do you want me to say this week? Because I have no idea. And if I don't pray that prayer, if I don't say, Lord God, please tell me how in the world, you know, Lord, would you help me to understand what I'm supposed to teach this week? then I can sit there for probably a whole day and I won't get anything. I'll just lay there looking at my Bible and I'll read it over and I'll keep reading it over and I'll be like, wow, I, oh boy, I'm in trouble. And then the Lord reminds me, Ed, you didn't pray and ask me for wisdom, Ed. So every week I pray and ask God, show me. And as I said, my intention was to teach 28 through 33. This was the last topic in the world that I ever wanted to teach on. Because the whole week long, as I was going through this, I had a dreadful fear of the Lord. Am I sure, Lord God, that I'm doing this the right way? Am I sure that I'm going to teach these people that listen to me the right thing? Because after all, Lord, I don't really like to test you, Lord. It's kind of dangerous. It's scary. I don't want to do that. So as I prayed, and as I asked, you know, God, is this really what you want me to do? As I uncovered the evidence of the Bible of the fact of this, I found an overwhelming mountain of evidence where this is not the only place that God said that people could do this. Absolutely. So that's number one. Number two is, I think, another reason. So I believe, number one, the reason I'm teaching this today, this week, is because God wanted me to teach this this week. God wanted to show us an aspect about himself that is not really taught in Christian churches and among, amongst Christian circles really anywhere. I don't know if I've ever heard this kind of topic being taught in a Christian church, ever. Number two, a lot of Christians and Christian pastors are afraid of the idea of testing God or something they think they hear from God. And I'll, I'll admit I am too. I'm scared of that too, be honest. But number three, the biggest reason is is because I absolutely see it in Scripture from godly men of old and Peter and the disciples here who had good reason to test in God and what they thought they heard from God, and they did. And it's all throughout the Bible, as we're going to see right now. We're going to look at examples of times when other men of God in the Bible of old tested what they heard from the Lord, tested when they saw God, they tested God, and we're going to see how that all went. And here's the thing, I believe. If we can read it in God's Word, and we see examples of it in Scripture, and God allows it, and He even approves of it, then it can't be wrong. Because like I said earlier, the Bible is how we get to know who God is. God revealed Himself in His Word. And if we can see it in Scripture, and it's approved by God in Scripture, then by golly, God says, it's something I want you to look at. It's a characteristic of myself that I want you even to practice. So, can it be a terrible thing? Yes. Can it be a terrible thing? No. It's a yes and no. 
It can be a terrible thing. It can be a really terrible thing. Like when Satan tempted slash tested Christ in the wilderness. But it can also be a positive thing like when Jesus and the disciples tempted Jesus on the sea. So how do we know when, when God says it's a good time to test me? Or how do we know when it's a bad time? A terrible time, an evil time to throw a test toward God. Remember, if it's a good thing, you can walk on the sea. If it's a bad thing, Jesus Christ will rebuke you and you'll sink like a rock. Exactly why, exactly the way uh, Peter walked on the ocean and exactly the way that Jesus rejected Satan and he rebuked Satan. And considering, I don't know that we want to make God angry, God says in his word, Hebrews 10.31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The last thing that we should want to do is make God angry at all. Remember Matthew 10.28, Jesus said of God, And do not fear those who kill the body but, not, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body and hell. And as I said earlier, as I hope you are where I stand, I don't want to make God angry because he has the power to cast my soul into hell or to give me eternal life unto him. So the only place that we can go to get the answers to how do we know it's a good time or how do we know it's a bad time or what are the right circumstances and what are the wrong circumstances is what? We go to the Word of God and we look at what the Word of God says on this issue and we go throughout the whole counsel of God. We don't just exclude the Old Testament because, well, that's the Old Testament. No, no. And, oh, well, in the New Testament, that's really my book. No, God says every word that I breathe is accurate and every word that I breathe is able for uh, doctrine, or reproof, and correction, and so on and so forth. So we can look at the whole counsel of God to see where God says that this is an approved thing by Him or an evil thing that he considers. So let's go to the Bible, and I want to show you some examples of some times that people tested God, that God approved of it, and we're going to look at times that people tested God, and God disapproved of it. And we're going to look at what happens, and we're going to look at the things which God did in response to what man did. So look at the good things first. Well, I like to start off with the good. We can always end with that old naughty stuff, but let's start with the good stuff. Let's Start right here in Matthew 14, 28. We're going to talk about this a little bit. Read it again. I'm going to read it again. Peter answered Jesus and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. As I said earlier, this was Peter and the disciples testing Christ. But why did Jesus approve of them testing him here? Why? I mean, because Peter got out of the boat. He walked on the water. We see that Peter tested him. But why did God approve of it? I mean, why didn't Jesus rebuke him right then? How dare you? you? You better just believe it's me right now. Why dare you test me? Number one reason why Jesus approved of Peter and the disciples testing him here is Peter and the disciples weren't 100% sure it was Christ speaking to them. Remember the terrible, destitute, desperate situation that they were in. Remember that storm that they were in. Remember they hadn't seen Jesus in almost a full day. They were only halfway, 16 to 18 hours going over that sea. Peter was not testing Jesus with evil intentions in his heart going, I'll get him, I'll just, I'll, I'll throw that out at him and he's, he's got to make me come to him. No, absolutely not. Peter and the disciples were making 100% sure it was really Jesus that was talking to them. And in this situation for Peter then and for us now, a good approved time when God says, you can test me, is that when we're not 100% sure that it's really, truly God and Jesus Christ speaking to us. And we want to be sure, you know, our heart condition is, Lord, I want to be sure it's really you talking to me. Because, Lord, if it's not you talking to me, you know what happens when you obey the voice of a stranger? You know what happens when you obey the voice that's not God's? Number one, you fall into disobedience. And number two, you move outside of God's will. 
So if you're really truly seeking and you think you hear something from God, like Peter and the disciples did here, they thought they thought it could be Jesus, but oh my gosh, look at the situation. And it's a ghost. No, maybe it's not. Oh, maybe it's Jesus. I don't know. Jesus, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you. Unlike Satan, <clears throat> we'll look at his later, he just wanted Jesus to do some kind of carnival trick for him. Ah, if you are the Son of God, you know, as in the parallel to this one here where Peter used the same words, but we can even see that Peter using the same words as Satan did. Jesus approved of it because his heart condition was as such as, I just really want to know it's you. I hear your voice. I, I think it's you, but is it you? Because, Lord, if it's you, I know you can make me cross that water. I know if it's you, so, Lord, I really want to know. So that is the number one way, the number one reason that God here, Christ here, allowed Peter to test him. The number one reason. God, like the example that Christ gives us here, approves of it because he didn't have any evil intentions behind his test of him. And if we earnestly want to know it's truly God speaking to us because you don't want to be in error, God doesn't mind it at all if you test what you think you hear from him or what you think he's telling you, just like Jesus did with Peter here on the Sea of Galilee. That's number one. There's other reasons, though, that God allowed people to test him. There's another one. Gideon, a man of God, a great man of God in the book of Judges, tested God two different times in the Old Testament when he thought he thought or he thought that what he was hearing was from God. It was actually three tests total, <clears throat> but two separate occasions. So we're going to cover them. And this is kind of where God gave me the title for this, you know, sermon today. Is it really you? Jesus, because listen to Gideon here, a great man of God in the Old Testament, how he tested God. I'll give you a backdrop. We got Judges 6. The angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, but he was really, in case you're wondering, whenever you see in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord with a capital A, that's Jesus Christ of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ only became the only begotten Son of God when God put his Holy Spirit and impregnated Mary to have Jesus as a baby. Jesus was with God in the beginning. He was God in the beginning, but Jesus w was considered in the Old Testament the, the angel of the Lord. So the angel of the Lord, or Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, comes to Gideon, and he comes to him to raise up this man, Gideon, to fight against these oppressing Midianites. Okay, But Gideon has doubts that it's really God talking to him to do this task because of his position in life. So we'll get to it at the end, but I'm just going to read it. Judges 6, 17 to 23, and we'll see how God approved of another man throwing a test toward him. Jesus comes to Gideon, tells him, I want you to do this. I want you to go fight these Midianites. I want you to really deliver Israel from the hand of these oppressing Midianites. Judges 6, 17 to 23. Then he said to him, Gideon, Gideon says to Jesus, If now I have found favor on your sight, then show me a sign that it's you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he, Jesus, said, I will wait until you come back. Verse 19, So Gideon went and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread for an ephah, from an ephah of flour. The meat he put into a basket and he put the broth in a pot and he brought them out to him under the tibranth tree and presented them. The angel of God, or Jesus Christ, said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour them on the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed from his sight. Now, did you get that? Gideon tested Jesus Christ because, what did he say? He wanted to, I just don't know if it's you, God, talking to me. I'm this lowly guy. I'm of the small, one of the smallest tribes of Israel. And here you, 
I think you're God. I, I, th I think you're from God. You're asking me to deliver all my people from this, these people, all these people, these great numbers of people, these great people that are oppressing us right now. I just want to make sure it's you. So he says, can I test you? God says, go ahead. Wait here. I'm going to go get my stuff. He goes off, gets this offering, brings it back. Jesus Christ takes his staff, touches the rock. Fire rises out of the rock, consumes the, consumes the food. God disappears. Gideon's response. Now, they'll show you Gideon's heart here in his test toward God. Now, Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon, so Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. <laughs> so Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. To this day, it is still an Orpah of the Abizrites. Now, you got to understand, people in the Old Testament didn't quite know that God was in three parts. That he was God, Jesus Christ, or the angel of the Lord. He was God Almighty, and he was the Holy Spirit. So when Gideon saw what he knew to be the angel of the Lord, he, they literally thought that was God Almighty that spoke to Moses on top of the mountain that said, if anyone see my face, he shall die. Gideon didn't know that this was God, but it wasn't God, the Spirit Almighty God. This was God, his soon-to-be son, so we could see Jesus' face as Adam and Eve saw Jesus' face walking, them in the, walking with them in the cool of the Garden of Eve. So you could see the angel of the Lord's face and not die, but Gideon didn't know. So Gideon didn't want to just test God. Well, just because Gideon wanted to really make sure that this was really Jesus Christ, really God Almighty speaking to him. So he, got, so he said, can I test you? And God says, absolutely. Why did he test Jesus? Remember what I said, he was a simple Israelite from a tiny people group. And God asked him to go to war against the Midianites, which was a much bigger and stronger and more powerful nation than Gideon's little people group. Now, if I could be so bold, if any of us listening here today would have had the same situation happening to us, and let's say that, uh, you know, all the Muslims in the world were about to attack America because there's more Muslims in the world. There's like 1.4 billion Muslims in the world. There's only 350 million Americans in the world. Okay, So if some guy came to you and said, Hey, uh, John, I want you to deliver the world against all these Muslims that are about to attack America. And there's 1.4 billion Muslims. Okay, and, and, you've, and you're only 350 million people. And he comes to you. You know, we're not the president of the United States of America. We're not the captain or chief of the general. We're just lowly us, live in a suburb town. Yeah, you want me to gather these 350 million people, which most of them can't even fight, and you want me to go against 1.4 billion people? I'll guarantee you, every one of us would say, God, is this really you? I don't know. I need some help here. Okay, I need some help. Please show me this is you, because right now, I'm terrified. Why would you come to me? I'm this little insignificant guy, and you want me to go up against this great nation that's oppressing us? Uh, Lord, um, I just, please have mercy on me here, Lord. I want to make sure it's you. And God would say, yeah, go ahead. Because we know that God approved of it, because did God get mad at Gideon? What were God's words to Gideon? Peace be with you. Do not fear, for you shall not die. God did not have any problem at all with Gideon's test toward him because of the situation and Gideon wanting to make 100% sure. God, is that really you? That's where we got the name of our title of our sermon. Second instance where Gideon tests God twice. Now I titled this one, God, Jesus, is it really, really you? Really, really? I just really, really? Judges 6, 36 through 40. So he's in the midst of this whole thing. God's still with him. The angel of the Lord is still walking with him. He's still talking about what he wants him to do. And so Gideon kind of gets a little closer to doing this event, a little closer to gathering the people together and a little closer to actually really going to war with this massive army that's gathered outside of Israel. And so they have another little exchange here in verse 36. Gideon says to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, because now I know, I know it's you, God. 
I, I know it's you. You proved to me it's you by the fire and the rock and the offering. So I know it's you. But Lord, if I'm really understanding you correctly, what you want me to do here, I just really need to make sure it's clearly really what you want me to do. If it's really you who want to save Israel by my hand, as you've said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground around, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So Gideon lays the fleece test out before God the second time to make sure it's really God that's, you know, not only that it's really God, but it's really God speaking to him, the fact that he wants them to deliver Israel from these Midianites. So he says, listen, God, here's the first deal. I want to know if this is what you really tell me to do. I'm going to lay this fleece out, and I want the fleece to be wet, but all the ground around it to be dry. And what does God do? Verse 38. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, I got you. That's the first one. Okay, I'm almost there, Lord. I'm, I'm paraphrasing just a little bit in there. Help us out. Do not be angry with me. Let me just one, make one more request. Allow me once more to test you with the fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with the dew. And that night God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with the dew. So two instances that God allowed Gideon to test him, but three times that Gideon tested God in two specific times. And neither time did God get angry with him because... That second time, exactly what it was, it was happened. The ground around was all dry and only the fleece was wet. God allowed it. And then from that point on, God, Gideon, did exactly what God said. He was never in question again about what God wanted him to do. And he went off and he did exactly what God wanted him to do. And he conquered the Midianites. And even God told him to do a radical thing in that. He had like 35,000 men gathered together to go fight this war. And God says, ah, you got too many. And so Gideon says, well, what do you want me to do? He goes, well, go send him down to the river. And it ended up that Gideon ended up going against 135,000 Midianites that were attacking Israel with 300 men. But he didn't have to test God on that one because he had already tested that it was really the Lord, number one. And it was, he was really making sure 100%, yes, God, this is what you want me to do. In re... re God had no problem with Gideon's test toward him. Reality by this point had set in. Gideon realized, you know, there's 135,000 men outside waiting to destroy us. I really need to make sure, God, it's you. you. You are telling me to do this. I know it's you, God. You've already proved that one to me. Now I really want to make sure it's you. It, this is what you're really telling me, and I'm not misunderstanding what you're trying to tell me here. God says, oh, no problem. Go ahead. He, Gideon looks at the odds. He tests God. God approves of the test. God does exactly what Gideon asked, and God didn't get mad at Gideon because he did exactly what Gideon asked him to do. Did Jesus Christ get angry? Absolutely not. We see another test. Gideon testing God three times in two instances, and God did not get angry with Gideon. Praise be to God. There's one more for the good, and then we'll move over to a couple bad. The last one, Abraham, the father of faith, the Bible calls him, actually tested the Lord God in Genesis chapter 18. A little bit of backdrop in the situation. The Lord God visits Abraham and fills him in on his plan to check out the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, which was kind of right below where Abraham was staying. Abraham realized, since God knew about the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, he was probably going to go down there, see it was really true, all the reports that he had heard about it, and he was going to go ahead and destroy the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Abraham had a personal interest in God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what was it? Well, he knew that his relative Lot lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. So Abraham loved Lot to death, loved him like he was his own child, loved him as his own brother. And so, of course, he was kind of scared for Lot. So in the midst of all this, God's kind of filling him in on his plan. And Abraham breaks out and says, But Lord, I, I know, Genesis 18, 22-25, the men turned away and went toward Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. 
Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now he knows this is God Almighty. He knows this is the king of the universe. He knows it. Abraham's not confused here. He knows this is God. Could you imagine, because Abraham had a lot of guts. I don't really know that I could have God standing in front of me and say this same thing to God. But Abraham did. Abraham standing before the Lord, he approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Because he knew Lot was there, okay? What if there are only 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will you not judge, or will not the judge of all the earth do right? Now remember his audience. I mean, if you were standing before God right now, I don't, number one, I don't even know if I'd be able to stand. I might have fallen to my knees by then and being crying out for mercy, oh God, I just, I love you, I, I just, but yet Abraham here took a bold step and he threw a test out to God because of his love for his believe it was his nephew, Lot. And he goes ahead, and not only does God approve it, God says, no, I won't destroy the land for 50 righteous. No, I won't. But Abraham goes all the way down in 5 to 10 people increments and gets God all the way down to 10. He goes from 50 to 45 to like 40 to 30 to 20. He goes through all these several times and gets God all the way down to, if God would just agree, I won't even destroy the city if there's 10 righteous in all the city. And there were hundreds of thousands of peoples in Sodom and Gomorrah, yet Abraham broke God down to where God wouldn't destroy the land. That's how much God loves his righteous men, that he wouldn't destroy the land if there were 10 righteous in the land. And if you know the end of the story, God ended up even honoring, he knew Abraham's heart, and God did destroy Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone, but he delivered Lot and his wife and his daughters out of it, which he, oh, God only found four or five righteous in the whole land of all these hundreds of thousands of peoples that he actually, he ended up destroying the land, but he removed the righteous from the land because he knew his servant Abraham's heart toward his fellow brethren Lot, and he didn't want to destroy Lot along with the wicked. And so God delivered him. But we see here Abraham... Abraham tested God for his love for his fellow kin, Lot. And he put a test toward God. And did God get angry? Did God get angry with Abraham for testing him? He absolutely did not. God went along with the test and he said, I won't destroy him for 50. And I, no, no, I won't destroy him for 45. No, I, I won't destroy him for 40. No, no, not even 30. No, not 20, not even 10. And then God even honored Abraham by delivering Lot and his family out of the land before God destroyed it. So he absolutely did not get angry even when Abraham tested God. And so Abraham was pretty bold with God in his tests. So we've looked at some of the times when mankind was able to test God, when God allowed mankind to test him. And we looked at their heart conditions and their attitudes toward God when they did it. And what did we see? We saw that because they earnestly just wanted to know the truth, they earnestly really wanted to know that it was really God, they earnestly wanted to know that, you know, that they were following the correct thing of God, that God did not get angry. Every time God had patience with them and he approved of their tests. And believe it or not, but for time's sake, we won't get in there because we're already probably going to be running later than what we normally do. There are mountains more of people that God allowed him, them to test him. But we just can't go through them because we ran out of time. But I thought, you know, between Peter and the disciples and, and Abraham and Gideon, which were all great people of God, that we'd get the picture. So now we saw their heart condition. Remember that heart condition. But now we're going to look at a couple times when God was tested by man and did not approve and why that he didn't. We're going to look at Satan and his attitude and his motives again in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Look at Satan in the wilderness with Jesus. And we'll look at the exact opposite. Satan tests Christ, tests God. 
Is it really you, Jesus? I could just hear him now. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. Notice when the devil really took precedence and started to tempt and test Jesus Christ. He did it when God, of course, was in a humiliating circumstance, when God was starvingly hungry, almost to the point of death. That's number one attitude we see there. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the devil took him up on a holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, It's written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God to do evil. You could add to that. Okay? Because Satan was tempting Jesus to do evil. God, throw yourself down. Commit suicide, Jesus. And because God really loves you, well then, he'll rescue you because he loves you. You see the difference in the tests and the tempts versus Peter and the disciples and Gideon and Abraham. See the difference here? And Jesus said to him again, Again it is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him the kingdom, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Look at this here. This is how Jesus, this is how Jesus responds to a false test. A, a, a just test him because I can Test him, test him to, to, you know, show him up, test. And then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. And then, Je now, now, look at there. Did Jesus get angry with the, temp with the temptations and with the tests of Satan? He absolutely did. Away with you, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve and worship. He got angry. Now, why did he get angry? Satan really knew that Jesus Christ was God's son. In fact, he already knew because God shows me this. Why did it matter if Jesus bowed down and worshiped him or not? Because Satan knew if I could get God to bow down and worship me, then my ultimate desire would be fulfilled. I'll be able to sit in God's place in heaven. That's what Satan's always wanted since the beginning. He's wanted to be in God's place. So Satan knew that it was Jesus. Satan knew that he was the Son of God. Satan knew all these things, but yet he still threw out a temptation and a test anyway. And God did not approve of this test and Jesus. Away with you, Satan. For it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. Another one with Jesus, Matthew 15, 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle Him in His talk. Notice their heart condition in the very beginning. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle Him in His talk. And they sent to Him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, now listen to their words. They're testing Christ here too. Teacher. We know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, well, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, right in the very beginning, how did they come to him? They came to him wanting to trap him in his words. Because in case you didn't know, if Jesus would have said, oh, yes, Oh, it's, it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. They would have gone to the Jewish people and they would have said, Jewish people, Jesus is all for the Romans. He's an apostate. He loves the Romans. Go get him. But if Jesus would have said, hey, listen, guys, I live for God. And I'm of the Jewish nation of Israel. And you know what? We don't even like you Romans being here. So you know what? No, don't give anything to Caesar. No, keep it all back and only give it to God. Then they would have immediately gone to the Roman leaders 
And they would have said, Roman leaders, you've got this great teacher here and he's teaching people, but he's teaching people not to obey you. He's teaching people not to give their money, their taxes, unto the government. He's teaching against the government and then the government would have come, arrested Jesus. They would have arrested Jesus and hauled him away and Jesus would have been tried for tyranny. So they thought, I'm going to get him. I'm going to test him just to get him. Look at the heart condition here. But 18, verse 18, Jesus gets them back. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? So looking at their heart condition, looking at the way that they tested God, look at Jesus' response. Was Jesus angry with them for testing him? Absolutely, he certainly was. Absolutely. And he calls them hypocrites and he notices the wickedness of their heart. So he did not approve of their attitude of their heart. He did not approve of their test toward him. And he rebukes them for it. And then he says, give what is Caesar to Caesar's and give what is, to, give, give what is God's to God's. So he appeased everybody. And that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be good people, pay our taxes. And we're supposed to be good people. And we're supposed to give our gifts and our tithes unto God. So we're supposed to be good soldiers and good stewards of what God has given us, both to our government and to God. So, last example of an unapproved test that people threw on God. We got Numbers chapters 13 and 14. Here's the backdrop. God delivers and brings all the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, out from underneath Pharaoh's yoke. He completely does all kinds of signs and wonders and miracles. Now, at the current state, here we are in Numbers 13 and 14, God had given them a cloud by day to travel so that they could be cool and a pillar of fire by night so that as they walked and followed God, they would know exactly where God was leading them to go. you got to remember the same people that God delivered from the land of Egypt. God split the Red Sea through Moses' rod for them. And they saw the whole Red Sea split. And they walked through on dry ground. They had a complete um, multitude of miracles and signs and wonders to know this was God that we're out here in the wilderness. We're out here because of him. He's delivered us from, Israel. He's delivered us from Egypt. We are free. We're, we're ready to go. So we find ourselves in Numbers 13 and 14 with God bringing these people out. And he was just about to let them into the land that he was going to give them as their inheritance. And Israel, right before they go in, sends 12 messengers, 12 spies to go out and spy out the land to see whether the land was good and how easy or how hard it would be and so on and so forth. So these 12 spies go into the land of Canaan looking at what you know, God's about to give them and they all come back. Well, 10 out of the 12 people that go in as these spies come back with a bad report. And they start swaying all of the Israelites, the millions of people that had followed Moses out of the land of Egypt, and they start swaying them, saying, oh, it's too hard. Oh, you got to see the people. Oh, they're, they're as big we're like grasshoppers in their sight. We, we can't defeat them. God's brought us out here to destroy us. Oh, my goodness, what are we doing? We're going to die. How did the congregation of the Israelites respond? Numbers 14, 1 through 4. So the congregation lifted up their voices and they cried, and the people wept that night. So this is, you, know, you can read that verse and think that the people just wept like for a moment. No. They wept about what these messengers said all night long. Verse 2. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us out to this land to, for us to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader that we may return to Egypt. Now they were in hard labor and hard service under the Egyptians, and yet they wanted to go back to that even after they had been set free by God from that bondage. So, what do Moses and Aaron do? They fall on their knees before the people, either to appease the people or either to pray to God, saying, God, please don't destroy them, because God was getting angry with the people already for all our hearts. The, but the two messengers stand up, Joshua and Caleb, they stand up and they start pleading with the people. People, please! People, please, stop complaining! Stop complaining! That you're going to, you know, you shouldn't do this. We can do this. We can, we can take the land. We can do this. 
the people's response to even their pleading with them. Numbers 14.10. And all the congregation said to stone them with stone. So the congregation didn't even want to listen to the people that were trying to build them up. So God shows up. And the glory of the Lord appeared at the tabernacle meeting before all the children of Israel and speaks to Moses in verses 11 and 12. How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe? With all the signs in which I have performed among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Wow. And result, Moses intercedes for the people. God relents of just wiping them out completely. But, unfortunately, their sin has consequences. Their test of God has consequences. Numbers 14, 20-23. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, Moses. So God said, I'm not going to destroy them all, wipe them all out, and just start you all new. But truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men who have seen my glory and all the signs which I did in Egypt, notice how they saw it, and in the wilderness, and have put me to the test now these ten times, and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. Now, God just said, these people tested me these ten times. Did he approve of their test? Absolutely not. Why? They knew it was God. They had seen miracle upon miracle upon miracle upon miracle upon miracle upon miracle upon miracle. And that they tested him and tested him and tested him and tested him and tested him. And what did they do? They just refused to believe. They refused to believe. So with much proof comes much. God expects much out of you. And said they refused to believe. God said, I'm angry with them. So none of them have complained against me shall enter the king, shall enter the new land. So I hope you see that there's a right way to test God or something we think we hear from him, and there's a wrong way to test God or something we think we hear from him. Remember, the right way was Gideon and Abraham and Peter and the disciples. Humble hearts. Gentle hearts. God, I just want the truth. Lord, I, I just want the truth. Please, God, show me the truth. I just want to know. Is it really you that's speaking to me, Lord? Is it really, really you? And with that heart of humility and with that heart of humbleness, God says, I approve of that test. Okay, here. You, you want to test me? You want to really make sure it's me? Okay. Go right ahead, do it, and here, here's your answers. But then we have the wrong way to test God. We have Satan, and we have the religious leaders, and we have the Israelites in the wilderness, and they had hard hearts, and they knew the proof, and they saw the proof, and they just still, like Satan, like the religious leaders, like the Israelites, they just refused to believe. They weren't asking for a test to help them believe. They were asking for a test because they were just refusing. To believe. Many people nowadays think that they've heard God speak to them. Years ago, there was a lady in Florida who actually thought she heard God say to drive her children in her car into a body of water to murder them. She thought she heard God tell her, I want you to kill your children. Put them in the car, strap them in, and drive the car into a body of water and drown them all. And so what did she do? She did it. Upon the Abraham principle. She thought, because God said, Abraham, kill your child, then, Jay, that must be God speaking to me because, you know, God tells me to kill my children. And so there, there you go. Now, easily, she could have just easily gone to the Word of God and tested that Word of the Lord, but she was probably afraid to, yet she wasn't, a probably, she wasn't afraid to kill her children. She went ahead and drowned her children with no fear of the Lord. If she had just gone to the Bible, if she had just gone to the Word of God, she would have seen that although God said to Abraham, yes, I want you to kill your son, your only begotten son Isaac, God never made him go through with it. God stopped him right before he did it. He just wanted Abraham's allegiance. So easily, all she had to do is go to the Word of God and find out, no, I don't really see any place in Scripture where God told me, kill my children. Okay, people throughout the ages, another one, people throughout the ages have thought, I know when Jesus Christ is coming back. 
This is the day that Jesus Christ is coming back. God told me in a vision, Jesus is coming back now. Well, easily, you could have easily gone to the Word of God and seen, Jesus said, no man should know the day, nor the time, the hour, that the Son of Man will return. Matthew 24, 36. So, there's a way to test God the right way, and there's a way to test God in the wrong way. We have to make sure that our hearts are pure and we're really seeking God. Jesus said, if you seek me, you shall find me. But if we do it the wrong way, if we do it in error, God could smite you. So you want to always be careful. If you think you're hearing something from God, if you think you're hearing something, God tell you something, please, if it, you're not 100% sure, do whatever, any circumstance or anything you're going through, whatever's going on in your life, and you just can't be 100% sure it's God talking to you. God says he gives you full right to say, well, God, I really want to make sure that this is you. God, please show me that this is really you. Here's my test, Lord, whether it's a fleece or whether it's, you know, a right price on a house, Lord, if, if they won't come down on the price of the house, or, you know, Lord, I, then I won't buy it if it's not the house for me or, or whatever. But don't ever. Well, unless God comes down here and shows himself to me right now, I just won't believe. Well, that's hogwash, and that's a satanic test. So there is a right way to test God, and there is a wrong way to test God. Make sure, as God, as I said earlier, God tests us to find out where we're at with Him. We can test Him to make sure that it's really Him speaking to us. And if we have that heart condition of truth, and we're seeking Him to know the truth, God is okay with that, and we may proceed. Praise be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for uh, this time, Lord God, that we got to share your word today. Thank you so much, Lord God, for, uh, Lord, you love us. And the fact that, you know, Lord, if we just want to know the truth and we want to seek you for the truth, then, Lord, you know, you say it's okay. Lord, your word says it's okay. We, we can't argue with your approval of Gideon. We can't argue with your approval of Abraham. We can't argue with your approval of Peter and the disciples. I mean, we can, but Lord, we'd be arguing against your word. So I just pray, Lord God, that you would help us, Lord, to be seekers of the truth. And if that means if we hear something from you or we hear something in our church or we hear something from some TV pastor, Lord God, that we just don't believe it just because, well, it must be God that said that because that preacher man must love God. He said it. Lord, let us test all things, as your word says in Thessalonians, Lord. Let us test all things, but not despise prophecy. Let us test all things, Lord God, including even what we think we hear from you. Just so, Lord God, we absolutely 100% know that we are within your will, Lord. And that may that always be our heart. And Lord, if there's anybody out there, Lord God, that's tested God in the wrong way, Lord, because really what you showed us in your word with Pharaoh who tested you and with the Israelites who tested you, Lord God, you'll, you could just destroy them. And Lord, you could just not have mercy on them at all and just wipe them out completely and just destroy them. And Lord, so I pray that anybody out there that's maybe tested you in the wrong way, Lord, I pray that you would have mercy on them, Lord, and, and let them hear the sermon, Lord God, and realize that they tested you in the wrong way and repent. Bring them to repentance, Lord God, that they would not be testing you in the wrong way. And may, of course, we always, Lord, walk in the fear of the Lord, Lord God. Let us not ever tempt you presumptuously or test you because of the hardness of our hearts. Lord, I pray that our test would always just be unto you, Lord, just pure love. And I just want to know the truth. And is it really you speaking to me? I just want to make sure I'm in your will. Test, Lord God. Not, well, if you're really real, Jesus, then come down here and stand before me now. Lord, please help us. Lead us and guide us. Those of us that are really, truly seeking you. And we ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.